Welcome to the 352nd episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an excellent show for you coming up. We are going to be talking about CES, It's Fallen Apart, Amazon's sales challenges for Amazon's Echo devices, and another Madam A challenge that didn't go so well. We've got a survey about edge spending that we'll talk about. We've got a new product coming from Level Lock and a smart ring that is going to try to like move the category forward a bit. We've also got an update on smart appliances. And I am going to tell you my opinions on the Fi collar, which is a connected dog collar that I tested out over the month of December. We're also going to hear from our sponsor, Twilio, and our guest this week is the CEO of N-Ocean, which is an energy harvesting company. So Raul Widgergangs is going to be on the show talking to us. He's relatively new in the position, so you'll want to stay tuned to hear what he has planned. All of this and more await you after a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Silicon Labs, and Silicon Labs invites you to the open house of their new 3D smart home experience. I went to this, it's pretty freaking cool, y'all. You can take a self-guided virtual tour to explore cutting-edge smart home technology. You can review the unique benefits of each wireless protocol and learn how to connect to those ecosystems. As you tour the house, you'll be able to learn about wireless solutions connecting each device, read real-world case studies, and gain access to resources to jumpstart your smart home device development. Welcome in at solutions.scilabs.com slash homes. Okay, Kevin, big story this week. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, what? What? We didn't have a show last week. We didn't. I was just about, which is our first, it's not our first show of the year. Um, It's the first show after we had a hiatus, a one-week hiatus. So happy holidays to those who celebrate. Happy holidays to everybody. If you celebrate, I hope Christmas treated you well. If you don't celebrate, I hope you had excellent Chinese food and or whatever you do when, you know, European and American countries shut down for Christmas. We had a smart home horror story over the holiday. You did. What happened? Well, uh, we, not we, my wife cleaned out the June oven, as she does like every three months or so. You know, all the stuff that builds up inside, like any other oven, nothing new there. But some of the cleaner or the liquid from the sponge to clean it out must have gotten in the circuitry because when she was (gasps) done and she was going to run the little blow dryer option that it has to kind of circulate air to dry it out after you clean it, it flipped the GFI breaker. And I'm like, oh, and we've had problems with that GFI circuit in the past. So I'm like, well, let's go try a circuit over here on the other side of the kitchen, which is on a different dedicated GFI. And it flipped it there too. So I'm like, oh, it's not the breaker, it's the June. So I said to her, don't panic, let's leave it open and let it just let the water in there dissipate. At least that's my assumption that there's still some water in there. And 12 hours later before bed, I plugged it back in and it still flipped the breaker. I didn't tell her. I just unplugged it and left it open overnight. Next morning I wake up and I hear or actually see notifications on my June app that she's using the oven. So crisis averted, but boy, oh boy, was I scared. Oof. Yeah. Those ovens, well, they're cheaper than they used to be, but they're still not cheap. They're still not cheap, but they're worth it. We'll be talking about ovens later on in the show. I can't wait. All right, little little surprise for y'all, foreshadowing. Okay, back to this week's big story. I feel like there are two this week from the IoT land. First up, CES. It is falling apart. Because Stacy's not going. Because I'm not going. <laughs> I also joined many of my tech journalist colleagues in saying, no, thank you. Last Monday, right before the holidays, the Monday before Christmas, We saw The Verge, Wired, CNET, all of them. They pulled out. And then we saw a bunch of companies pull out. So far, let's get a partial list of companies. GM, Google, Lenovo, Intel, Timo, 
AT&T, Meta, aka Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, TikTok, Microsoft, and just today while we were recording on Tuesday, Eve pulled out. So tons of companies are pulling out because of the Omicron variant. We just, it's super contagious. We just don't know. I didn't feel comfortable going. I was on the fence. And then when everybody else started backing out, I was like, yeah, I'm gone. Yeah. And I don't blame you or any of these companies for pulling out of the show. It is a disappointment because when you go to the show, yes, you could stay home, which I was going to do anyway. You could stay home and just get the press releases or get briefed in advance under NDA or embargoes. And you could know what's going to be announced and have all the details. But being at the show, you can actually speak to the the engineers and, and the product people, and you can get hands-on with certain things. And we won't be able to get to do that this year. Yeah. And it's always a nice thing. Yes, the people who you talk to at the booths are briefed, but there are also people who help build it. And they're excited to talk about what they've done. And you get just much more interesting conversations, I feel. Yeah. Because the, the, the pre-brief stuff, like some of these companies I've talked to, there's some little news, you know, not specific to IoT. I do the Chromebook stuff on the side too. So, I, you know, there's Chromebook stuff coming from companies that won't be there. And I know that now. But the thing is, a lot of times with the pre-briefs, you're just getting the marketing messages. Whereas when you go to the show, marketing people will try and steer you around the booth to make sure that you get all the salient points. But oftentimes you can see somebody with a badge that says, you know, product engineer or system designer or whatever. You're like, yeah, hold on, marketing person. I want to talk to this guy. And you get some great insights onto how things were built and the decisions that were made. And and you get more than just the sound bites, which is nice. Yeah. So plus you get to see all your friends. I mean, it's Kevin and I have been covering this industry for for. Well, I've been doing it for a decade now. Kevin, almost as long. And, you know, we get to know people and it's nice to it's nice to see them in the real world, which we haven't done in two years. Absolutely. All right. So it's a big bummer, but it's happening because or maybe not happening. I'm waiting to see if CES shuts it down. I guess they don't have to because they've already got a virtual option. I was hesitant to bring that up only because that leads me to something that probably people don't care about, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I do not like the way that the Consumer Electronics Association is handling this because as soon as all these um, news reports came out of certain companies pulling out, they put out a press release and like, contrary to the news reports, CES is booming. We've only lost 7% of our floor space and we have 60 more exhibitors that just signed up. And like, guys, stop, just, just stop, you know? Well, I mean, what do you expect? They're really trying to keep this thing going. And I get it. It's a huge moneymaker. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's tens of millions, if not more, of, of an investment on their part. So I get it. But come on. Yeah. Well, this this is hard. I mean, we all want things to return back to normal. So I it's it's just hard. If you had if you had a Stacey on IoT event and in the same situation and some of your key people... I would cancel it, yes. You would cancel. You wouldn't say, I found excellent third and fourth rate people, <laughs> you know? Actually, what I would do is I would, here's how I, here's how I would handle it Hmm. because I do not expect hundreds of thousands of, well, a hundred thousand plus people or even tens of thousands of people to show up to my events. You're thinking too small, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'd be like, Hey, everything's virtual. Here we go. And then I would say, if you still want to come, we'll do a meetup. Unfortunately in Seattle, that meetup, well, hopefully I would have picked a a warmer climate because I would be like, we'll do an outdoor meetup. It's not as exciting, but, you know, we'll all try to be safer and do something like that. Because I would basically move everything virtual, but if you happen to want to come to see people, you could still do that. Right. right. So that's just me, because I, I do miss people. All right. Let's move on. Right before the holiday. This is several days old now, but we're going to talk about it because it's freaking big news in our space. Bloomberg wrote about Amazon's Madam A division. That's the the voice assistant, Amazon's voice assistant. We just don't say the name because we don't want to set everybody's off. This is a pretty, this well, it feels like a damning report, but I have some, some quibbles here. So a couple, the big points in this story are that Amazon has realized that the market for smart speakers is saturated, right? There's, it's no longer in the super growth phase. They only expect it to grow 1.2% annually for the next several years. 
Second point. People only use their Echo devices for like three things, setting timers, playing music, and turning the lights on and off. In my estimation, that's pretty much true. I would also argue, though, that in the time frame that this covers, which is 2018 to 2021, during the pandemic, it's not like you could use it to check your commute because a lot of people weren't going anywhere. That's true. That's true. So the big thing that Amazon's worried about is privacy concerns. People don't want to use Madam A for more because they're concerned about privacy. So Amazon is trying to establish this deeper relationship with users, but they're like, uh, I don't know if I want your camera in my house. I don't know if I want your motion sensors. So that explains why we're seeing kind of a slowed down approach to things, I would say, like context, like deep context about who's where in the home. And then the final interesting point is that Amazon is taking a loss on these items, about a $5 per device loss, but by 2028, which is really far away, wants to have a $2 profit on everyone. It's every Echo device it sells. So we'll talk about all of these. Which one do you want to talk about, Kevin? Oh, let's see. I have a couple thoughts. Let me see what they apply to. Let's talk about the engagement numbers first. All right. Because I'm going to add one more data point in here that stood out to me. According to Bloomberg's report, it says, according to internal data, there have been years when 15 to 25% of new Echo device users were no longer active in their second week with the device. So it's kind of like, we got it, we played with it, and we forgot about it. So, so to me, the one of the big themes or challenges is engagement. And this would be why Madame A keeps reminding people, hey, did you know that I could do this too? Which is kind of annoying. But on the flip it's side, incredibly annoying. <laughs> yeah. on the flip side, I think the problem is one of discovery, and they're trying to tackle that problem by the only way I guess they know how, and that is to say, hey, did you know I can do this? But I think it's a discovery issue because it is not really easy to find skills and they don't just get surfaced to you. So I think that's an issue. I would believe that, except... About five to six times a month when I rare, and I rarely use my Madam A because I don't want it to tell me, by the way, I can do this. Probably half the time I'm actually being asked to do things that only benefit Amazon's bottom line. It's not, and Amazon tells me, like when I've asked them about this, because I've written about this, they're like, yeah, it's hard to discover things on a voice platform. I get that. But for every time it tells me, hey, did you know you can get your commute? They're also asking me to rate a product I just bought on Amazon or telling me that I could subscribe and save to something else. And so I look at their discovery thing and I'm like, that's a little bit of BS. It's kind of like, I I don't know what it's like. No, but- no, I think you're right. I think the way they're doing discovery is not a way that's going to boost engagement because you don't have to be a genius to know that they're getting information from you that benefits them, right? If, if Right. That doesn't, asking me to rate a product doesn't help me at all. Also, I have turned off those freaking things a million times. CNET did a great story about how to turn off all of the Amazon Echo, like to, to make it less chatty. And I've done all of that and it keeps opening up new things. And some of them are, I mean, like it opened up weather announcements for me. That was never an option to turn that off, but now it is. You know, so I had to do that because I didn't, because again, the weather announcements were terrible. They were like, there is a slow flood. I'm like, so it's raining a lot? Thank you. I live in Seattle. I know. Tell me when it's a tornado warning. That's fine. But like, ugh. So. I'm also curious about your thoughts on something that I, I thought about when I read this. Does this say anything about the smart home market as a whole? Because my take is, I think Amazon just figured if people keep buying smart devices that they're going to add to these things, that's just going to boost engagement. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I when I add a new camera two or three to the house, yes, I test to see if I can see it from my smart display, but it's not like it boosts my engagement 25% because now I have something new to watch for. Mm-hmm. So a couple things on the engagement and 
I, I thought that turning on and off the lights was a really great example of where these things, where voice, I think this isn't a shortage on Madam A. I think it's a, sh- it's a shortcoming of voice in general. Voice is great for turning on lights. It's great for setting off a routine if you've created one. I think the other thing this says is interoperability, and this is why we're getting matter, is interoperability is important because you can't create a routine if your devices don't all work with Madam A, right? right? If it's too complicated to set it up. So I think we will see more routines and more engagement as it becomes easier to like basically build a routine. And you see Amazon doing that when they've created kind of like, they'll do the routine for you and create a link to it that you can activate. I, I think that will be important because most people don't want to set this sort of stuff up themselves. I right? agree. I, I agree. I mean, it, that's almost part of the discovery issue, discovering that you can group things together in a routine. If you don't know how or you don't want to, it's a feature you're never going to use. Therefore, you're not going to be engaged as much when that's a common routine in your house. Yeah. And so I think I think matter will help broaden the number of devices that you can control a little bit more seamlessly with the Echo. I think hunches are a good example of how Amazon's trying to kind of boost that engagement. I don't know how many people have turned on hunches. And then I wanted to get to the loss and the $2 per unit profit. So I think what we're seeing is Amazon doesn't care about losses. Amazon historically, broadly as a company, they do what they, they, they care about services. And eventually those services will turn into moneymakers, right? But Amazon for years operated at like, not necessarily a loss, but not quite profitable. Well, no, that's a loss. They skirted the edge of profitability. Let's call it that. They've historically done this to build out market share, you know, all the things the FTC might be interested in thinking about. <laughs> but so you look at Madam A as a platform and you see Amazon trying to do the right things to build out the platform. That's create a low cost device that can get into homes. They kind of pushed too far in the privacy front. They pulled back to get that, you know, to make people a little more, what's the word, content, uh, warm people up to it maybe. And now they're starting to launch subscription services around it. And I think that'll be really important. I also think these devices are going to be a base for the sidewalk network, which is also going to be something that over time broadens adoption of internet-connected devices that tie into AWS. And so all of that, I think, becomes part of an overarching money-making capability for, if not the Madam A division, Amazon as a whole. Yeah, I don't think it's a surprise that they're losing money. As you've outlined their, their typical strategy in any area they get into, they're fine with losing money to build out a footprint to take over essentially a market. So that's not terribly surprising, especially when it's, there's so many buy this and get a free dot. And, and you know, it happens with Google too, get a free, you know, Google Nest Mini or whatever. So I think they're, they're all losing money to some degree. Apple probably not because they're, they're priced much higher, but. Because um, it's Apple. Because it's Apple. Yeah. Yeah. One last bit that I noticed in here was that the engagement, according to internal documents for smart displays, was noticeably higher than smart speakers. And I actually do prefer having smart displays in every room. That's just me personally. I get more value out of it. That's No, that's that's true. And I agree. Well, I think it's because it's easier there's it's easier to discover things on a display. Like yes. it's not as annoying. You know, it doesn't take as much time for Amazon to flash you something. You can see data. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's probably part of it. You can also it's it's more obvious you can do things like play a YouTube video or no, you cannot. Can you play YouTube? Oh, uh, that's a good no, question. No, that's a Google display. Probably, yeah, on Google, on the Google stuff, I, I do YouTube videos and YouTube TV. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's yeah. a Google well, Netflix or Amazon Prime or whoever. You know, sure. Yeah. You can do things like that. You can also, you know, look at the weather. I, You know, it makes sense. And it also explains why there's like five to seven different display options out there for <laughs> Amazon. Sure. And they're moving, you know, also into the fire, uh, the smart home controls into the fire TV. So it also explains why I really believe that Apple should and probably will do the, I'll call it the home pad again for 2022. 
They should. I mean, uh, an iPad stuck in a wall is a very popular controller for many smart home type systems, like the more expensive ones, either an iPad or an Android tablet. So I don't see why they don't just. Yeah, it it doesn't have to be a thousand dollar iPad Pro internals and so on. Um, You know, just their basic iPad with some tweaks for, you know, an always on interface for your house, you know, that's available that would do the trick, you know. All right. So that's that's our take on the Bloomberg article. Let's move on to another Amazon Madam A story. Hey. Kevin? Yes. Speaking of things that Madam A might say, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, discovery on this one was not great. No, no. I mean, it was good discovery, but it was a it was bad thing to do. Um, and Stacey bad actually... Bad thing to discover. Yeah. Stacey didn't even think this was legit. But I'm like, no, no, no. Amazon actually has an official statement out. So this is legit. Um, over the past couple of days, over the weekend, somebody tweeted out that a uh, girl, a 10-year-old girl, asked Madam A for a challenge to do. So Madam A does what digital assistants do and went out to the web and said, oh, I found a challenge for you. Plug in a phone charger about halfway into the wall outlet and then touch a penny to the exposed prongs. Oh my goodness. Luckily, nobody got hurt. The girl was smart enough to not do this. The girl's mother is the one who tweeted all this and just, wow, that is terrible. It was a found on the web challenge. Yeah, it's basically some bad actor. I mean, those those things are pulled from the web. So some bad actor optimized for... For search. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Yes. So uh, the BBC actually got a statement from Amazon. And Amazon says that it has updated Madame A to prevent the assistant from recommending such activity in the future. And as soon as they became aware of this error, we took swift action to fix it. So again, nobody got hurt. But this could have been a not good story. Yeah, I'm glad it was not a worse story. I don't ask my assistants what to do. I mean, I'm also not 10, even though I act like I was about to say, you're not a 10-year-old. You have things to do. Like, if I'm bored, uh, you know, I have other ways to find things to do uh, that don't rely on a digital assistant. But uh, that's just bad. (laughs) It, It was not ideal. No. So, in enterprise and industrial IoT news, we have a survey from a company called Zadata. They make middleware that allows you to manage containers on edge computing devices. And if you're here for the smart home content, that whole sentence may have just made you go, blah. blah. But edge computing, y'all, it's super hot. So we're, we're going to talk about it. They surveyed 153 people, which is not a lot, but it's enough to, to care a little bit about this. So people are spending on edge computing. And Edge computing is basically any computing that doesn't happen in the cloud. You talk to the telcos, the telcos will say the edge computing happens in their their in their RANs and their central offices, so that's kind of localized data centers. If you talk to like an industrial company, they're going to say it's their gateway devices inside their factories. If you talk to a sensor company, they're going to be like edge computing is happening on the sensor or the smartphone. So, the edge is is a many varied place. But overall, it's super hot. 74% of people surveyed have some sort of edge project underway. Um, A lot of these do use the cloud because you process device data at the edge, then you send the insights to the cloud for further refinement. When we look at where this is happening and in what industries, it's happening mostly 48% of the people responded there in the technology industry doing this. 13% are in education. 12% 12% are in manufacturing, 5% are in oil ga- oil and gas. I think that's probably a function of there being just a few oil and gas companies out there because oil and gas has been doing edge computing for a long time because they are in a, They're remote. their whole process is super remote. Yeah. So I, I think there might be kind of some issues there, but the people who are thinking about edge computing, I found this really worthwhile. 15% were engineers, 13% held the title of manager, but 12% were CEO and executive level, which again ties to the fact that if you're doing any sort of digital transformation project, and a lot of these edge computing projects are part of that, you need buy-in from the top who are going to do this. And so that's it's heartening to see that CEOs or top-level executives are trying to lead this. Spending on this... Not so much. Uh, Less than half a million. 59% said they're spending less than half a million. 10% say they're spending five 
million or more. So that's kind of a, a big range there. But mostly people aren't spending much. They do expect to grow 55% expected to grow somewhat more. So you know. I, I think it's going to depend on the return on investment that they see, quite honestly. I mean, it's always a numbers game. Always. In these, you know, and, and I don't know what they're expecting, so it's it's hard to say. But one of the interesting aspects of this report kind of jumped out at me just because of my my own interests. About 84% felt that using open source software with the edge was either important or very important. And about the same percentage said they're worried about basically vendor lock-in, platform lock-in. And I only bring that up because I don't know of any major open source platforms for this type of implementation. It's really all Microsoft, Amazon. There's EdgeX mm -hmm. Foundry. So the Linux Foundation has several Edge projects that are trying to build out open source middleware. Mm -hmm. But you're right. A lot of it happens because you use some sort of gateway or IoT solution from a cloud vendor that ties right back. So you're using like Greengrass and for AWS or Microsoft's IoT Core? I believe that's I Azure IoT Core. Yeah, Azure, sorry, Azure IoT Core mm -hmm. that ties into IoT Hub that ties, again, back into Azure. Yeah, and, and, and your business is probably built on Microsoft products to begin with. So I, I do get that. I really do. Normally, when we see numbers for these cloud providers at the edge, it's always the same top three. And it's Amazon is usually way out ahead in general cloud, and then Microsoft Azure, and then way behind is Google. And just interestingly, out of these few participants, Azure was the one that they used most. That's because Azure is the hotness for industrial and enterprise IoT. If there is like, such a thing, yes. <laughs> yes. If they're they they are the hotness. Okay. Um and and that's because, you know, it's nobody ever got fired from buying IBM. They might in the, in this situation, but no one ever gets fired for, you know, continuing to use Microsoft. Sure. sure. And so yeah, and Google's got a long way to go. But they're actually doing better. They are eking on up there at 15%. Anyway, so the other, the reason why people are doing Edge is also worth talking about. Most of it has to do with what they call, what they're citing as competitive advantage, which I think is about data privacy and keeping your data locked into your own systems, which makes sense again, mm -hmm. because, you know, in the Web and IT world, like kind of the Silicon Valley world, that isn't a thing. But for manufacturers and true industrial players, it's a big deal. Um, those are your trade secrets right there. And the other focus that is leading people to the edge is, is latency and something called ensuring autonomous operation, which is, hey, if the web goes down, I can't have my business process fail. And it's also probably latency related as well. Because autonomous operation needs super low latency. You can't call back to the cloud and be like, hey, should I do this? I just discovered this buzzsaw is getting so close to someone's arm. What should I do, cloud? By the time the cloud gets back to you, the arm's cut off. Plug a penny in a socket. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's some data. We'll link to the report so you can see more. In an, We didn't really talk about it because it's so obvious, but security is the big concern here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Good. Security then cost. Good. It should be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not making fun of the fact that people are worried about security. I'm just like, yeah, that's that's where we're at today as people. Um, all right. Little news bits. Level. They make a smart lock that doesn't look like a smart lock. Very it's exciting. It's invisible. It's invisible. It's just a smart deadbolt, basically. It's, it's a very cool product. I like it a lot. They now have a keypad, which is great because I prefer a keypad actually more than a smart lock because a keypad is awesome. I prefer a keypad with my smart lock. Yes. Well, you have to buy this one. So the keypad will also work with all the previous level models. Yay. And yeah, so when you don't have a smartphone, you can can do this. And actually, this is this is the device that's going to make me want to buy a level lock. It's Yay. funny you say that because I've been waiting for a HomeKit lock and level has been HomeKit compatible, I think, forever. Um, yes. So I'm like, yep, they didn't have a keypad, but now they do. So it's either, well, this comes, I think, out in January is when it actually becomes available. That's yes. the ex expectation. And then we've got CES next week. So I'm hoping to see some nice lock 
advancements in the next week. I think you're going to be happy, my friend. I really do. Okay. Other news. There's a Movano ring. This is a ring that won't come out until the middle of next year, if it comes out at all. It's a it's another smart ring. The one we always talk about is the Aura smart ring, which is a pretty good ring. The Movado ring is going to include things like, hey, heart rate, heart rate variability, sleep, respiration, temperature, blood oxygen levels, steps, and calories. But instead of just giving you all that in like Fitbit format, they're going to say, here's how your exercise this week affected your sleep, which is really what we've been asking for for a long time. You're yep. seeing Apple deliver some of that whoop came out and did that, but ooh, whoop is hardcore. And, you know, the thing to note about this is they're going to get FDA approval for some of their uh, metrics, such as heart rate, just to make sure they're calculating this correctly, which is great because I feel like thanks to Apple, probably getting FDA approval for some of your metrics has become like table stakes for these devices. Yep which helps elevate them beyond kind of digital snake oil is how I think of them. So I'm really, I'm really happy about that. That's fair. And um, again, we do talk about the aura quite a bit. I've noticed if you stayed away from the aura because it's kind of chunky, this is much thinner. So they really slimmed down the sensors. I mean, this is like half the thickness from what I can see. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, I don't know. We don't know what it costs yet. I mean, maybe you're going to pay for that that miniaturization. I don't know, but it's you know one of the reasons I did not want an aura was because I'm like, oh, that's kind of chunky. It is. It is a substantial ring. Okay, and this is just a little note about smart appliances. I know you were telling us about your scary June incident earlier, Kevin. Yep. But uh, Elizabeth Parks of Parks Associates tweeted ahead of CES that they have found that smart appliance purchases in the past twelve months have skyrocketed to about 5%. It's about double. Yeah. Um, so, yay. And I will say, in the last year, I've purchased a washing machine that does have Wi-Fi. I have not activated it, but I did purchase that. And so that's in line. And just a month or two ago, it hasn't arrived yet, I purchased an oven or a range that, it's an oven and range, that also has Wi-Fi. It's a GE profile. Wi-Fi was not a feature I was necessarily looking for, although I was excited to see that I will have access to GE's smart oven updates over time. It's going to act a little bit more like the June if I want it to, which is kind of neat. But yeah, so 5% isn't much. I asked Elizabeth if this was like people activating it or just buying it. And she said that it was just people buying it. So this doesn't actually include the people who activate it, of which... I'm one of the people who has a smart appliance and has not activated The engagement problem all over again, just in more expensive uh, formats. We bought all our appliances about five years ago when we moved in, so this wasn't really a prevalent option, or at least one that we could afford or wanted to spend money on. But you know what? In the past two months, we did add two Wi-Fi smart air purifiers to the house. So, you know, even at a smaller scale, you know, I know she's not tracking that in this particular metric, but we wanted it. I was like, and has it, did you activate them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so in that case, the Wi-Fi was a selling point. I'm an engager. Ta-da. Yeah. Kevin the engager. All right. I feel like I've talked about this before. I definitely, I reviewed it in my newsletter, but I just wanted to talk about it a little bit in case you don't get the newsletter or you don't like to read, whichever, that's fine. I, over the month of December, have been testing the Fi dog collar. This is a connected dog collar. The collar costs $149, and I have to also buy a $99 annual subscription for the collar. But what it does get me is a collar that fits on my 20-pound dog and lets me know if she leaves a geofenced area, and then it will track her location. So if she gets lost, I can find her. And this, for a lot of people, is a big deal. The collar also tracks sleep, steps, and location, like I said, and... I had the CEO of Fi a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. He was a super fun guest. And I just wanted to, as a as a person who has tested this, give you just a little bit of update. With smart dog collars, one of the big issues is if you have a smaller dog, they're kind of heavy and big. And this collar weighs three times as much as her dumb collar. So it came in at 92 grams. Her dumb collar was 31 grams, and that included her rabies and her name tag. 
So it is heavier. It's a little thicker. Um, she didn't seem to mind it though. So I was, I was happy about that. And on location tracking, location tracking will use up the battery life. The battery life, if I'm just using it normally, is about six days. If I do location tracking, like she gets lost, I've got two days basically to find her. And it'll update every minute. So what you do is you'll be like, oh my gosh, you get a notification if your dog leaves a geofenced area. It'll be like, hey, mine says Sophie is on a walk without you. You're like, uh, no, she is not. And then you're like, oh, no, my dog is lost. So then you say, my dog is lost. And then every minute it will track where it updates the dog's location. It's about accurate within a seven feet. And if your dog's like hanging under a porch or something, it may not be as accurate, but you will get a general vicinity. I didn't let my dog roam free because there are coyotes here. So I didn't test. I I made my husband take her out on a walk to test it. That's fair. But it works. So if this is a thing that you're interested in, this is a device that works really well. And you also get cool like step tracking and you tried the whistle. Was that fun for you? Yeah, we do. We did try the whistle and it's it's a similar type of uh, device. I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. I don't think it has my favorite feature of the Phi collar though. Which is what? The one that tells you that your dog is in the top 86% out of all dogs on the app in terms of steps (laughs) she takes. So there's a gamification there for pups. I love it, love it, love it. And I also wonder if in the future, the company considers, as LoRaWAN networks get built out, taking, removing the GPS, putting in LoRaWAN to use less power, and just building off of that for location. You know, if you listen to the guests on the podcast, I asked Jonathan Bensimon that same question. And he said, right now, LoRaWAN does not cover the areas he needs. They evaluate everything every year or so. But for now, yeah. and probably the near future, he's not doing LoRaWAN. Now, now that you mention it, I recall him saying exactly that when I listened to it. Ah, That's I correct. See. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, it, and I, I agree with him. It, it's a when it's viable, not, not, is, not now. I, I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. So just throwing that out there. I know we've got some dog lovers in the in the audience and now this is available. And I had been interested actually even from a year ago, but I didn't, it felt silly to try to test it. But then when he came on the show, I was like, yeah, let's do it. So there you go. Okay. Well, that concludes the news segment. Let's go to the Internet of Things podcast hotline. This is the segment of the show where we get questions from y'all and we try to answer them. And the hotline is brought to you by Very. Very is a fully distributed IoT engineering firm that partners with clients to build systems for smart manufacturing, smart energy and utilities, consumer electronics, and connected wellness. You can discover what Very's multidisciplinary teams can do for you at verypossible.com slash services. All right. And when you call us at 512-623-7424, you will be entered to win. Oh, this is the, almost the end of December. You're going to be entered to win a Lutron hub and an outdoor outlet. Woo! So it's kind of like the beginning of your Lutron journey because we think Lutron is so baller here at the IoT podcast. I agree. All right. This week's question is from Keith, and he wants the impossible. Let's hear it. Yes, hi, this is Keith Allred calling from Louisville, North Carolina. I am attempting to find a uh, Wi-Fi motion sensor that does not require an external hub. Uh, I have several, but every one that I have also requires a hub, and I've, over the years, had different issues with those hubs. So... I've changed over all my light switches to Wi-Fi, and I really like them, and they work really well. And I've also changed over some bulbs and other things to strictly Wi-Fi and have had no issue whatsoever, as I did with Zigbee and Z-Wave. So I've been really happy with the the, uh, Wi-Fi. So looking for a motion sensor that does not require a hub and is compatible with Matame. Enjoy the show, as always, and look forward to hearing more. Wish you guys a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Okay, Keith, there's a reason you can't find this. 
And the reason is Wi-Fi as it stands today is a giant power sucking demon. Okay, it's not a demon. Compared to other compared to other wireless protocols, yes. Yes, compared to Zigbee, Z-Wave, Bluetooth, Thread, all it Wi-Fi just it sucks a lot of power. Now, if you're willing to wait and you still want Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi Halo was approved by the Wi-Fi Alliance in November of, la- of this year. It's still this year. And this is a long-range, low-power Wi-Fi. So it doesn't send a lot of data, but it can send it really far, and it can send it without consuming a lot of power. So it's possible, nay, it is definite that we're going to see Wi-Fi sensors pop up using Wi-Fi Halo. You will have to have a Wi-Fi Halo compatible router, though. We're probably going to see those in the form of hubs initially, and then it will get built into Wi-Fi routers in a couple of years if the standard really pans out. So that's that's where you're at. But we have options. Well, if you want to wait a little bit, because I know that um, there's product that's, well, there's a product that's available now, but I don't know if it would work for you just yet. The EVE motion sensor uses Bluetooth LE. And what I'm saying to wait for is I don't think it has thread support yet. And I say this because I would probably look towards products that are going to get or already have thread support because that's going to help in the future for your your entire smart home, quite honestly. The only problem is you're not using, it doesn't sound like any Apple stuff and Eve currently is Apple only, although hopefully, I think they might have even said they're, you know, that they look into Android every year. They do. Okay. So what Kevin's alluding to, because right now I wouldn't recommend you go grab this, but in hopefully just a few months, like the middle of this coming year, 2022, we're going to have the matter standard out. And that means there's going to be a bunch of new devices that are quote unquote matter compliant that will have both. Wi-Fi and thread. Now, a motion sensor is not going to have Wi-Fi in it, again, because of the power issues, but it will have thread. And if you buy another device in your home or one of your, if you've got a newer Madam A device, what will happen is you should see it become matter compliant and also act as a, I know it's a nasty word because you didn't like how they worked. It's a hub. It's what they call a thread border router which means it will run thread and Wi-Fi so your thread sensor can use a low-power protocol to talk to the hub, and then the hub will translate it to Wi-Fi to send it out over the public network. So the bottom line is you should wait. The only other thing I would say to you is if you have a newer, like an Echo 4, like a fourth-generation Echo or one of the Echoes that has Zigbee inside, You could actually just use a motion sensor that talks to your Echo device using Zigbee because some Echoes have Zigbee in there. So that would be like a a near-term solution for you with a further out solution being either a Wi-Fi halo sensor or a matter-based sensor that uses thread. And then you would need to make sure one of your devices in your home also is a matter-compliant thread and Wi-Fi device. And just to clarify the whole bit on Wi-Fi and power, most Wi-Fi devices, in fact, I'd say 99.9% of them, there's probably a few exceptions, don't run on batteries. And motion sensors are typically battery powered. Wi-Fi devices are typically plugged in. So that's the reason that you're not going to find. I had a Wi-Fi powered leak detection sensor and every three to six months, three months when it was cold, I had to change the batteries in that thing. Yeah. And that's that's what they're trying to avoid for you. Exactly. All right. So kind of middling news there, Keith. We, and I hope that helps. Remember, if you if you would like us to crush your dreams about Wi-Fi sensors, <laughs> give us a call at 512-623-7424. That concludes this segment of the Internet of Things podcast. Please stay tuned for our guest, Raul Widgergangs, who is the CEO of N-Ocean. We're going to be talking about energy harvesting. And before that, we'll hear a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Twilio. 
Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Twilio, who many of y'all know as a provider of APIs for customer engagement. For example, voice, IVR, SMS, WhatsApp, or even the Stacey on IoT podcast hotline is built on Twilio. But not many know that Twilio has been offering cellular IoT connectivity for years. So I have with me Tobias Goebel, who is the product marketing principal at Twilio IoT. How's it going, Tobias? Going great, Stacy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, your main cellular IoT offering is called Twilio SuperSim. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how you differentiate it from other solutions on the market? Yeah, absolutely. Besides SuperSim being a single SIM that opens up almost 400 IoT-optimized networks around the world, we also run our own IoT-only mobile core network. Oh, so you have your own IoT-only mobile core. What does that mean for the customer? First and foremost, owning our core lets us pass through much more control to the customer over exactly which networks are used. And also offer better visibility into logs and connection events for troubleshooting. But our core is solely reserved for the needs of IoT devices. And those connected to our network do not compete with the millions of smart or feature phones out there. We're much quicker with improving the functionality over time, fixing bugs, or generally catering to what our IoT customers need. Nice. And can you give an example of what kind of customers might need this functionality? Yeah, so generally anyone that you know wants to expand to new regions um, that, that go beyond their home country will benefit from this you know, better visibility to, to logs and troubleshooting capabilities, but also more control by being able to actually select from a pick list those networks that you would like to utilize and deselect those you do not want to use. That gives customers like those that use us for micromobility or use us for health wearables and they want to launch their product outside of their home country or to other regions, that ability to, to do that quickly. That sounds great. So can you tell our listeners how they could give Twilio SuperSim a try? Yeah, we offer a free trial to your listeners. Uh, head over to twill.io slash free sim to sign up. That's twill.io, as in twillio, slash free sim, all lowercase, one word. And you can sign up to get a free sim sent your way with full access to our platform and APIs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Raul Wittergangs, who is the CEO of N-Ocean. Hello, Raul. How are you doing today? Hey, Stacey. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I am super excited to have you on the show because N-Ocean makes energy harvesting IoT devices. And I... It's been a couple of years since I've talked to Enocean, but obviously everyone on the show who listens to the show knows that I am super excited about energy harvesting technology because, my goodness, we cannot replace batteries on all of these things. It would be just ridiculously time-consuming. So let's first kick it off because you are the new CEO, relatively new. You joined Enocean in August. Can you talk about why you joined? Absolutely. Um, I've been in the IoT space for, for 20 years, uh, mostly in the smart home space uh, running Z-Wave. But when I was uh, looking about uh, what's next after Z-Wave and, uh, and smart home, I love IoT. I, I was really exploring things to do uh, around uh, IoT in industrial and commercial environments. And obviously, um, I'm deeply passionate about uh, sustainability. If you realize that uh, 39% of all carbon footprint that gets uh, emitted into the air is uh, caused by buildings, both residential and, uh, and commercial and industrial, we got our work cut out. And if you then look at a cool technology based on energy harvesting that looks as though it doesn't use any energy, but it uses the energy around the devices itself, and that, uh, deploying that sort of super cool technology in environments uh, where today we are wasting a lot of energy. If you drive around through a city in the evening, almost all lights are still on in the, in the office spaces and um, the heating in buildings or the cooling in buildings is far from optimal. Uh, so there's a lot of work that we can do in order to uh, manage our buildings uh, better than we're doing today. And what better way to do that with than with uh, energy harvesting IoT devices is what I thought. So um, when I had the opportunity to join an ocean, I grabbed it with, uh, with both hands. 
Excellent. And we've actually been hearing this stat a lot, that 39% of carbon emissions come from commercial buildings. And that's it's driven a wave of investment in the smart building space. So expect to hear a lot more about this. But for now, an ocean has been doing this for, for 20 years. And was this always the focus here at Inocean? You know, in, in all fairness, when the company started, it was much more about creating uh, light switches that were completely wireless. So obviously IoT wireless, but also uh, no power in them. So it's the kinetic energy of a finger uh, that pushes a button that generates um, generates the energy for these light switches to communicate. Um, at that point in time, 20 years ago, carbon footprint sustainability wasn't uh, that high on anybody's, not on anybody, but not on most of people's uh, agenda. And in all fairness, I think it was much more about lighting controls back then, mostly in commercial en- environments, because battery-less uh, was something that commercial environments simply can't can't deal with. For every about 10,000 devices you deploy, if 10,000 battery-operated devices, you would need to employ about one extra person in your IT department just to manage those 10,000 devices and their batteries. So batteryless or energy harvesting has always been at the heart of the company for sure. But to say, listen, already 20 years back then, we knew that 39% of carbon emissions came from uh, commercial, industrial and residential buildings. Now, I don't think that would be fair to, to, to make that claim. We've learned a lot over time, and so has the rest of the world, uh, and we see it as a massive opportunity for us to tap into. We saw that uh, probably five, six years ago already, and we've been driving towards that uh, big time. So now it is obviously almost everybody's agenda, but certainly on ours. Got it. Yes. Everyone was very excited. And I think a lot of the IoT, a lot of the focus has been on the fact that we're making a lot of sensors wireless, which makes it easier for companies to deploy them in different places, right? And the battery is kind of secondary. But now everybody's suddenly like, after they've deployed some of these things, they're like, oh, wait a second. We, we, We don't want to change the batteries. So now we're looking at things like over-the-air power. We're looking at energy harvesting. So let's talk about the options available for energy harvesting. You mentioned kinetic or piezo. There's solar. There's uh, temperature change. I, are there others that we should be focused on? Uh, there's magnetic fields that you can harvest. RF energy harvest is also an interesting uh, one. So there is, there's many, many different uh, sources of, of energy that you can look at harvesting. It is all about finding the, route, the right power envelope of, of, on one hand, the harvester, and on the other hand, the wireless communication system that is deployed in those uh, devices that, uh, that determines what, what optimal combinations to choose and how to develop optimally for them. That's really where the trick sits. It's not an easy thing to do because you, these environments are not necessarily constant either. If you if you deploy deploy something with a uh, with a solar cell, and hopefully in in these uh, commercial environments they do turn off the lights over the weekends, and obviously the device should still work on on Monday when you come back into the office. It can't be that it then needs two hours of light before it starts working again. So. It, this, these environments and the energy around these devices isn't isn't constant uh, either. And if uh, a sensor gets deployed underneath a desk, there's less light than when it's on top of a desk or, or these sorts of things. So designing energy harvesting around IoT is is not an easy thing to do, and it requires a lot of uh, a lot of specifics and a lot of know-how and skills to to do that in a proper way. And that's what the company has been doing for the last 20 years and. And we, we're building millions of devices per year, uh, so so we have we have nailed that, and that's where really the expertise of the company uh, is sitting in in the hardware side. As the industry works to reduce carbon emissions in commercial buildings, I feel like some of the low hanging fruit, like hey, lighting management, has already been. I guess, taken. People are already working on that. So where are the next areas? I I feel like occupancy has been getting a lot of attention, but any other areas that are kind of worth talking about? Building management, whether it's for lighting or for shades or for temperature, has been worked on 
many, many years. But when you talk about these sorts of systems, and we have been involved in that industry, in this building automation system for the last 20 years ourselves too. But when you start talking about these sorts of uh, devices and applications, you're really talking with the, the, the owner of the real estate, uh, the owner of the buildings, because they own the air conditioning, they own the lighting, they own the shades, etc., etc. So it's tech that goes into the buildings. Now, real estate isn't the fastest market. Uh, they don't have access to a lot of buildings, in all fairness, too. When a building is rented out for five years, they don't have access for five years. And then before a new tenant comes in, they be three months to, to modernize it and to deploy um, some, some um, building automation or so. Where the difference comes in is the following. Because indeed, that, so that building automation and these building automation systems and management systems have been around for, for many years. Where the difference comes in is the following. The tenants of these buildings, the, the companies that rent buildings for their own, for running their businesses, really haven't had, uh, on one hand, an interest much in the past to reduce the power consumption to a great extent because sustainability wasn't on their agenda. And now they do. If if a company A rents a building and company A wants to become a sustainable company, they have an interest to reduce the energy consumption. But all these measures and all this technology is owned by the building owners. So how do you deploy, on one hand, you have technology that is owned by building owners, and on the other hand, you have a need by companies that are tenants of these buildings to have sensors that measure is there enough light or what is the temperature or what should the temperature be or which desks are being used which desks aren't used so when people come in with flex desking it's certainly now uh, this in this post covid era uh, where do people go where do they assign a new desk for this person and this technology of sensors that are owned by the tenant just like the wi-fi access points are owned by the tenant that's these sensors that are owned by the tenant need to speak to the building management system that is owned uh, by, the, by the real estate owner. And that's where the difference uh, comes in. These things never, uh, it wasn't never really on the radar of tenants to begin with. And now it is on the radar, but now they need to speak to each other and they're not a single company. So tying these two things together as a business is not an easy thing to do both in, from a technology perspective, but also from a how do you get to those two different types of markets in a, in a way that unifies them so they can collaborate. And an ocean is playing a very important uh, role in that. And let's also not forget the companies that are building the access points uh, in these, for these tenants, these big players. We have a, an announcement partnership with, uh, with Aruba, and, um, you know, these, these companies are, are working very closely with us to carry the signals that, that, they, that these tenants get from these sensors to a cloud to go back to these uh, building management systems. And, um, you know, that's, that's where the trick really sits. Uh, it's not, it's, it, is, it is not a straightforward way to go to market it is for, for a tenant. They need these relationships with these building automation systems that, that an ocean brings to bear. So it sounds like I should be thinking of an ocean less going forward as a energy harvesting IoT device company and more as an attempt to build up this, I don't want to say middleware because middleware isn't sexy, but build up this interoperability layer for buildings to become more energy efficient. Yeah, it's, it's really tying the world of building automation that has been around for decades tying that to the interests of the tenants in, in sustainability through sensors. So you have certain products that are owned by tenants, other products that are owned by building owners, and these products need to speak together. And that interoperability quest is what an ocean brings to bear. And let's talk about what people should be measuring. Um, we've talked about kind of what's hot, but what measurements have the biggest impact on energy reduction or cost reduction? And maybe those are the same things. They're certainly close, uh, closely related. So post-COVID, 
people may come back to offices three, maybe four days a week. But the expectation is that one to two days per week on average, people will remain working from home. Now, if, if, you, if you're a big corporate and you have 100,000 employees and you know that 20 to 40% of the desks at any given time will not be used any longer, you have an opportunity to reduce the amount of real estate that you need as a tenant. You can reduce by 20 to 40%. Now, that in itself is, is sustainability because when you reduce your, the amount of real estate that you need, you will also be reducing your carbon footprint. Having said that, when employees then come to an office, those three or four days that they do come to the office, they don't have their own desk anymore. They're all sharing desks, uh, but they need to be assigned a desk. When they come into the office, they need to know where to go. They need to know which desks are used, which desks aren't used, uh, which meeting rooms are used and not used. So sensors that can look at the, the vibration of a desk when somebody is typing on a keyboard or just so very softly bumping into a um, into a desk or something like that is is a very good measure to determine if a desk is used. Um, and that information needs to be known by these tenants in order to accommodate uh, the, the, the people that are coming in with these flex desking solutions. This occupancy of desks is, is important. But at the same time, we've also learned uh, things about ventilation and uh, how important it is to uh, reduce the carbon dioxide in, in meeting rooms or in uh, or in uh, open office spaces. So also the, the carbon dioxide sensors tie into the ventilation systems again. And, and these sorts of things are of interest to the tenant because the tenant wants a productive uh, and a healthy uh, employee um, base, but it, it, it requires a communication between these sensors and the ventilation systems or the cooling systems or the heating systems. And that is, uh, that is done through the cloud and, and the sensors that communicate to the access points um, um, of Aruba, for example. Okay. And what would you say, you are a Z-Wave pioneer. You, you helped bring Z-Wave to the world. So what would you say you've learned from that experience as you're trying to build another, it, it's another type of interoperability standard for connecting kind of different parties. And I would honestly say that the smart home is still kind of a mess. So I don't know if corporate people would be really excited about this. So I don't know. What have you learned? <laughs> Yeah, so, so one of the key learnings is there is not a single company in the world that, that can do this, that can fix this, that can uh, drive all solutions uh, to everybody. So it is essential, I would say, to do this in a, a ecosystem type of environment. The good thing is with an ocean is that it started uh, the Ocean Alliance uh, as an ecosystem uh, already more than, uh, than a decade ago. Um, so they are, they understood this already in the the building automation side, and we can continue uh, on that basis. But where the Ocean Alliance is, uh, has most of its participants by uh, by hardware manufacturers. What is now important is that also uh, software uh, developers, uh, cloud developers, system integrators, they should be joining as well in order to provide these turnkey solutions to these tenants of, uh, of buildings, because that's in the end uh, where it needs to go. They will never become, they don't have a desire to become an expert in IoT, nor do they need to, but there needs to be a single place they can go to, to get their, um, uh, let's say, questions answered and to get their interests uh, addressed. And, and doing that in an ecosystem fashion is one of the things that um, we already learned at Z-Wave back then. And, um, is, is super critical also for an ocean going forward. So we've touched briefly on the available types of energy harvesting technologies out there. Are there new technologies on the market that you're excited about? I mean, I look at things like, oh, Asia has this over-the-air charging technology, which feels pretty exciting, but also maybe not as realistic. Over the air would be fantastic, right? There is uh, RF uh, all around us. There's Wi-Fi. We have uh, cellular. Uh, there is a lot of RF out there. But if you really start looking at how much can you harvest from that, 
and uh, what level of communication do you need? You know, if you can collect the RF that is around a device for a good period of time, uh, a number of days or something, you may collect um, enough for one uh, form of one packet to be uh, wirelessly transmitted. It is kind of that's how little RF there is around you if you try to harvest that. But for certain applications, it, it may be okay to, to look at uh, RF. And it also depends on how far that device then needs to communicate. If it only needs to communicate uh, like half a, um, half a meter or let's say roughly two feet or so, it, it may be doable, right? And for certain applications, it may be doable. And for that reason and for those applications, uh, RF harvesting is, is super, uh, super interesting. If you have something that needs to communicate uh, at a distance of, let's say, uh, normal Bluetooth, Wi-Fi type of distances uh, of 10, 20, 30 meters or something like that, and it needs to do that every minute, you cannot harvest enough RF in order to, um, in order to, to power a, a radio system like that. There are other very novel forms of harvesting, even some sort of mechanical harvesting. When certain materials are dry, they have a certain form or shape. And when they get wet, a little bit like a sponge, you have these very small, super dry sponges that you may may remember. And when you make them wet, then suddenly they are five times as big. There are materials like that that can also be utilized because when they become five times as big, you also have a form of kinetic energy. Uh, again, that will work great for, uh, for let's say, a single, a single communication for perhaps a, uh, a water leak detector that sits in the wall that, that you don't need on a very regular basis. And then it works fantastic uh, to, to have a, um, a system like that. And when it then dries again, it becomes small again, and then it can be deploy- redeployed again. Uh, or redeployed, it can start uh, to communicate again after that. So there are definitely other very novel forms of harvesting out there, and and I'm sure there's going to be more in the the future that will create very exciting opportunities that that are hard to to create uh, with other forms of harvesting, uh, because in between drywalls, it's always dark. (laughs) Solar would not be a good solution there. True, and, you know, Probably neither with temperature change or motion. I guess I could be knocking on the wall all the time to make sure it works. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, you, know, you, you know what? Micro vibrations. You, you don't realize it, and certainly uh, where you are in Texas, there is there isn't a lot of um, earth movement. But every building has micro vibrations, and also they add up over time uh, to to something. But but not on a like every minute uh, type of communication, but uh, very occasional one. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. All right. Well, Raul, thank you so much for talking to us this week. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. 